If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in them in the Old Testament to the book of Jonah and chapter number four in the book of Jonah. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one under a chair in front of you, and you can grab that Bible and turn in it to page number 658, and you would find yourself at Jonah chapter four. There's an expression out there that we all hear from time to time. It's the expression, warts and all. You may hear that when someone says, oh, I, I like them, warts and all. Well, I always find it fascinating to think about where does language come from? What's the origin of things? What's the origin of this little phrase, warts and all? And I thought I'd just share with you about the origins of that. O.S. Hawkins tells us that that phrase, warts and all, goes back to a name of someone we maybe learned in school by the name of Oliver Cromwell. Now, he was someone who lived in the 17th century. He was a political and military leader in England. And that's where this phrase comes from. Because, you see, Oliver Cromwell sat down to have an official portrait made. And it was going to be the portrait for all of history. All future generations would look at this portrait to remember Oliver Cromwell. And what he told the portrait artist was, I want you to paint me just as I am. I want there to be no flattery involved in this at all. And so he actually told the artist who was doing his portrait, I want you to paint me warts and all. And we have there for you a picture of Oliver Cromwell. If you look closely, you'll notice that it includes warts and all in that portrait of him. And of course, what that phrase has come to mean is a real-life representation, warts and all, defects and all. When we look at the book of Jonah, what we really see in the life of Jonah is a true real-life representation. We see Jonah warts and all. If you've been with us in our study, you'll know that in chapter 1, he says to God, when God says, I want you to go to Nineveh, he says, I won't go. In chapter 2, he says, I will go. In chapter 3, he says, I went. And then in chapter 4, as we're going to see today, he's going to say, I regret going. And then regarding the will of God, we see him ignoring the will of God in the first chapter, acknowledging the will of God in the second chapter, performing the will of God in the third chapter, and then questioning the will of God in chapter number four. We see Jonah warts and all, and I think it underscores the reality that this is a divine book. A lot of people have given criticism of the book, but I think it underscores the reality that it's a divine book, because if it wasn't, if it was just a human book, it would end in chapter three and verse 10, when you have the people of Nineveh citywide repenting and turning from their wicked way, and God relenting to bring the calamity that he said he would bring upon them. The greatest evangelistic success that has ever been seen, an astounding amount of success, some 600,000 to a million people who were evil and ruthless and cruel come to trust in Yahweh God. That's where the book would end if it was just a human book. But we see Jonah 
warts and all. In fact, what's interesting to me is that the book of Jonah begins with Jonah and God, and the book ends with Jonah and God. And we have been relating that when this book is read on an annual basis in a Jewish setting, that after it is read, the congregation responds with the phrase, we are Jonah. And the truth of the matter is there's a little Jonah in all of us. And so I believe that when you open up the pages of the book of Jonah, we have an opportunity to see ourselves reflected there, warts and all. And we're going to see some of that today as we unpack the fourth chapter of the book. Now here's the plan that we have laid out today as we line out the order of chapter number four. First of all, we're going to see Jonah's self-righteous self-centeredness in verses one to three. And then we're going to see God's corrective strategy to that self-righteous, self-centeredness in verses 4 to 9. It's going to involve some questions from God, and it's going to involve an object lesson. And then thirdly, we're going to see the clarification of God's heart in chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And then, when we're done with all of that, we're going to draw some life lessons from chapter 4 and from the book. So we're going to see his self righteous self-centeredness, we're going to see God's corrective strategy, and then we're going to see the clarification of God's heart. Are you ready to get going? Let's begin by looking at Jonah's self-righteous self-centeredness, and we see that in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. You can follow along as I read these first three verses. After this tremendous response in Nineveh, verse 1 of chapter 4 says, but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Now, if you are reading your way through the book and you see this incredible response to his message of impending judgment, you have to admit you're a little shocked when you get to chapter 4 and verse 1. It's just a little shocking to us. And part of the reason is that we do not see, we're not able to see Jonah's heart the same way that God's able to view Jonah's heart. And the heart of the problem for Jonah was a problem of the heart. And I want you to notice what it, it talks about here as it talks about his self-righteous self-centeredness. Notice it says there in the first verse, but it greatly displeased Jonah. Now, in the original language, this is very, very strong. Literally, it says, it was evil, a great evil to Jonah. It was bad, it was exceptionally bad to Jonah. And he became angry. Literally in the original, it burned him. He was hot. He was ticked off. He was fuming over this. And so he decides to register a complaint to God in verse 2. And he says, is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Now, we don't have any record that he actually said that to God. It could be he's just relating what his inner talk was, his inner thoughts, what he was anticipating could happen. 
Is this not what I was thinking would happen while I was still in my own country? So in order to forestall it, I went to Tarshish. Because I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Now I want you to notice a couple of things about Jonah here. The first one is this, that Jonah knew Scripture well, but his heart was cold. You say, well, where do you get that from? Well, the last part of verse 2 there where he says, I know that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. That is a very accurate rendering of Joel chapter 2 and verse 13. Some scripture that had been written 75 years earlier. Jonah knew scripture, but his heart was cold. And you know what? I think we can do the same thing. We can fool ourselves sometimes. If we know what Scripture says, we think that's all we need to know. Now, knowing truth is important. You have to know truth. If you're around Wildwood, you know we have a great stress on that. But you can know a lot of truth and yet have a heart that is out of tune with God's heart. Let me put it Another way, knowledge of Scripture does not mean that your heart or my heart is in sync with God's. It's just important we understand that. Just because we know what the Bible says does not mean that my heart is in sync with God's heart. That's why, why when we talk about how we are to shine as light, and L-I-G-H-T stands for the five purposes of the church, and when it comes to the whole issue of truth, L stands for not knowing about God's truth, but living out God's truth. The goal isn't just to know about it, even to be able to quote it. The goal is to go from our head and allow that to penetrate down into our heart. More than knowing about truth, living out truth. And Jonah knew Scripture well, but his heart was cold. Second thing I want you to notice is that obviously Jonah was suffering from self-righteous self-centeredness. And it's very obviously, it's very clearly given away by the use of the personal pronouns I, my, and me in verses 2 and 3. And they show up eight different times. Notice in verse 2, what I said, why I was still in my country. And... Uh, then he goes on later on and down in verse 3 and he talks about, Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. I, I, me, me, my. He was bound up in the self-righteous self-centeredness. Now think about what was going on here. He had contempt for the Ninevites. And he was saying to God, they're evil, they're wicked, and of course they were. And he's saying, they're guilty, they ought to pay. They should really pay. Wicked people should pay. They should pay. Wicked people should suffer the consequences of their actions. That was his attitude. He was really saying, in essence, I, Jonah, am different than them. They're more worthy of wrath than me. And he's saying to God, this is not my idea of justice, God. This is not my idea of what's fair. And I, I know I've had those same kind of thoughts. This is not my idea of justice, God. This isn't really what's fair. 
And every time, I, I have to stop myself and say, wait a second, is that what I'm calling God to do, to relate universally to everybody, including me, in terms of justice? Is that what we want from God? We want justice? Is it justice that you really want, Jonah? You know, and as I said, there's a little bit of, of Jonah in us. Well, let's just be honest about it. You know, there's people around us, and, and we do have a tendency to look down on them and to look on them with some contempt. I mean, there's some people maybe you know that are dishonest, and they cheat, and we just really look down on them. Or maybe there are people you know who, who like to get high on a regular basis, and they're addicted maybe to some substances, or people that you know that are promiscuous, and we just go, oh man, those people. And of course, all of those things are wrong. But we just have an attitude, you see, that's not very different from the attitude that Jonah has, where we, we see people who like to flaunt the fact that they're agnostics and they're atheists, and we sort of just despise them. Or we think about radical Muslims, and oh man, just if God was really going to be just, he'd wipe them off the face of the planet. Or maybe there are some people who are homosexual activists on the campus, and we say, those people need to get zapped by God. And what we're really saying is, in essence, they're more worthy of wrath than me. I mean, look at them. They should pay. They ought to suffer the consequences for their choices in life. They ought to get justice. God ought to just give everybody justice. And again, we ask, is, is that really what we want from God? See, Jonah's attitude here reminds me very much of the attitude of the Pharisee in Luke 18 who goes to the temple to pray, and he's standing there praying, and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Look at these other losers here. And in particular, this tax collector here, which were the lowlifes of the, the culture. I thank you, God, I'm not like that. That self-righteous, self-centeredness. Now, I believe there are at least two contributing factors to a self-righteous perspective. I want to talk about them very quickly. And, and Jonah was suffering from this. Number one, he lost sense of his own sinfulness. He said, these people are wicked. They don't obey you, God. And I want to go, oh, whoa, 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 time out, Jonah. Time out. Uh, what about you refusing to do the will of God? When God told you to do this, and you actually did the opposite. I want to go, time out, time out. What about you? You're pouting when you should be praising God. I want to I go, wait a minute, now time out just a second, Jonah. What about the arrogance that you have here in confronting God? When you're telling God, God, you're off base. God, you don't know what you're doing here. I mean, this can't be the right way to handle this. You're not being fair. See, a lot of times, men and women, we lose the sense of our own sinfulness. And that's because we have these little categories of what's sin and wrong and wicked and out of line. 
But Jesus tried to unpack that and show, whoa, 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 your standards are way off. Remember how in Matthew chapter 5, he said, listen, if you are angry with your brother and you just want to get back at them, he said, in, in God's eyes, you're guilty of murder. Whoa. That's a little different way of analyzing things. And he said, oh, listen, if you just look after a woman with the intent to lust after her, he said, in my eyes, you're guilty of adultery. See, sometimes we lose the sense of our own sinfulness because we use a measuring stick different than God's. Now, there's a second contributing factor to this self-righteous perspective, and that is, I believe, that Jonah lost focus on the mercy that God had shown him. You remember the story. You remember how he'd rebelled and He'd gone the wrong way, and, and then he ends up in the midst of the storm being tossed overboard, and then he ends up churning around in the belly of the great fish. And while he's there, back in chapter 2, verse 9, he says to God as he's appealing to the Lord, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving, and that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is of the Lord. Lord, show me mercy. And then we know that God did. God just sort of, woo, you know, onto the dry land. Mercy that God showed to him. And too often we lose focus on the mercy that God has shown us. You know, God, he tells us to the nation of Israel, he says, I did not choose you to be my choice nation because you were the greatest nation on earth. God did it out of his grace and his mercy. God didn't choose Jonah because he had the best heart in all of Israel. He did it because of his grace and his mercy. And God didn't choose you and didn't choose me based on how righteous we were. It just wasn't that way. It wasn't that he looked down from heaven and he said, you know what, when I see that Bruce Hess guy, whoa, that's the kind. It wasn't that way at all. He did it because of his mercy and his grace. And too often we lose focus of the mercy that God has shown us. I want you to keep your finger here in Jonah 4. Turn with me in the New Testament to the book of Ephesians. From time to time, men and women, we need a fresh dose of Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 9. Because it is a reminder of the mercy that God has shown to us. Notice Ephesians Chapter 2, verse 1, he writes to us and he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, and that was us. That's the group we were in, the sons of disobedience. And among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath even as the rest we were people headed for the wrath of God even as the rest but then you come to verse 4 but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us you and me even when we were dead in our transgressions he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus 
so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards you and towards me in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one could boast, so that no one could look down on these other people and think that yourself righteous. And even now, as we see back in Jonah, God dealing with Jonah, he's dealing with Jonah in mercy. I mean, look at what Jonah's doing. He's saying to God, you, God, are out to lunch. You're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong, God. And yet God, we're going to see, is gracious back to Jonah. You know where self-righteous, self-centeredness leads? It leads to distorted thinking, and it leads to discouragement. And that's exactly what we see in verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Translation, I am not happy with the way that you're doing things and the way that you're allowing things to happen. I don't like the way you're doing things down here. I'm not happy. Yank me out of here. Now, every once in a while, you know, you're reading through something like this and you think, if you were God, what would you do? You know what I'm saying? Jonah's going, yeah, I'm not happy with you. You're not doing it the right way. You're doing it wrong, God. Yank me out of here. And God could say, that could be arranged, Jonah. Your wish is my command. Have a little lightning here. Zook, you know, zap. There's just a pile of ashes left there. God could have done that, right? But he doesn't. Instead, we see God's corrective strategy in verses 4 to nine. Now, you know, right about now, it's a good thing to, to pause and just say, why, do, why does God bother with this? I mean, why, why is he bothering with Jonah? I mean, why doesn't he just find somebody else? Find another prophet? And there's an answer to that question, and the answer is that God is committed to Jonah, and God wants to use Jonah to reach other people. And God, men and women, is committed to you and committed to me, and he wants to use us to reach other people. I like the way Ken Garrels puts it. He says this, in the book of Jonah, God is carving away at Jonah's character to the last verse of the book. And it's so true. And God is committed that way to all of those who follow him. And he wants to use you and me to reach other people. And that's why, that's why, if you wonder why, he will carve at my character and carve at your character to the very last breath that you take. Notice how God responds in verse 4. We'll read down through these verses. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? And then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. And there he made a shelter for himself, and he sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. 
So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from the discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. And when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. And then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Now I want you to see God's corrective strategy here, and it involves some questions and it involves an object lesson. In verse 4, he says to him, do you have good reason to be angry? Literally, it says, do you have good reason to be hot? And of course, it's talking about especially in light of the rescue that God, the merciful rescue that God has given to him at the end of chapter 2. He's saying, wait a minute, will you just stop for a minute? Do you have good reason to be hot? Think about what's happened in your own life. But you'll notice something here that Jonah's not listening. In fact, we see no response to this question. In fact, he decides to go isolate himself, and he goes out from the city, and he sits down east of it. Now think about what's going on here. You have the largest spiritual conversion that has ever happened in human history and you think Jonah could have stayed there. We had a lot of new people, new, new believers in Yahweh God. And he could have taught the converts. And he could have shared the scripture knowledge that he had. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he's stubborn and he decides to sulk because he does not get his own way. So he leaves Nineveh. He goes out east of the, the city, which was, by the way, very hilly. There were like what we might call small mountains there. And he can have a view of the city. And you can just tell what he's thinking. He's thinking maybe that response of the people in Nineveh was a hollow response. Maybe it's going to evaporate. And, and sometime in the next 39 days, God will zap him. Or maybe he's just thinking, maybe God will change his mind again. And he, he really will, will not relent, but rather he will wipe them out. And so he's going to sit there, but it's out in some rough terrain, and so he builds himself a little shelter, which really is a word that means a very tiny little hut. It was a, the kind of thing that you would build, and then you would get a few branches, and you would try to put these branches there to give you some sparse shade to protect yourself from the sun. And notice it, it says there that he sat under it until he would see what would happen. I'm willing to be here for 39 days. Just to watch, see what happens. And then you come to verse 6, and it says, So the Lord appointed a plant. In chapter 1, verse 17, it says, The Lord appointed a fish. And here he appoints a plant. Now, we don't know exactly what kind of plant it was, but many scholars believe it was a castor oil plant. Castor oil plant had very shallow roots, had very big leaves, and it would grow very fast. But you notice, though, it seems to grow and give him shade in one day, which points to the fact that it had to be a supernatural thing. Just as appointing a fish to swallow you is a supernatural thing, so appointing a plant 
that grows up in one day to give you extra shade is a supernatural thing. And notice it says, this was to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. But I, I want you to understand something here, and don't miss it. You know, this wasn't a shade issue that God was addressing. <laughs> this is an attitude issue that God is addressing. But it's fascinating to see how verse 6 ends. It says, and Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. The plant gave him great delight. In fact, when you study your way through the book, this is the only time in the book that we see Jonah happy. Now, let me ask you the question. Why is he delighted? Why is he happy? Because his personal comfort needs were being met. See, we're back to that self-righteous, self-centeredness. I am so happy what I wanted and what I personally needed, I've got. You know, it's interesting to me that even with what God provided for him, there's no words of gratitude here, no words of thanks. Well, then you look at verse 7. We know that earlier God appointed a fish and then God appointed a plant. Now he appoints a worm. And when dawn came the next day, this worm attacked the plant and it withered. And then notice verse 8, it says, when the sun came up, God appointed, now we have him not only appointing a, a fish and a plant and a worm, he appoints a wind, a scorching east wind. And uh, most scholars believe this was a Sirocco, an S-I-R-O-C-C-O. And when the Sirocco would come on this part of the world, the average temperature would go up 16 to 22 degrees. This wind could blow up to 60 miles an hour. And what would happen is it would effectively suck all the moisture out of the air. And God appoints this wind to come. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and he begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Yank me out of here. But God is still carving away at Jonah's character. So then he comes to him with a question in verse 9, and God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? I'm just, I'm just amused by his response. I have good reason to be angry even to death. That's, a, that's an idiom that means to the extreme. I have good reason to be angry to the extreme. When I was studying through this, it reminded me of a phrase that came out of the, the uh, TV program Laugh-In at the end of the 1960s and the beginning of the 1970s. And that little phrase, this would come up a lot at Laugh-In. The phrase was, you bet your sweet bippy. And that's exactly what he's saying. Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? You bet your sweet bippy I do, God. Absolutely. 
totally. You bet your sweet bippy I have reason to be angry. What's going on here? I mean, we, we, he's self-consumed, isn't he? He's impertinent with God. Can you imagine saying that to God? You bet your sweet bippy. I have good reason to be doing this. And how does God respond? He respond he's still patient and gracious with him. Could have zapped him here. But that leads us to the clarification of God's heart in verses 10 and 11. Where the Lord says to him, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, in which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as animals? Now, I want to make a very quick note here about the 120,000. We've talked about this earlier. I said that I really believe when it talks about 120,000 who don't know the difference between their right and their left hand, that it's talking about babies. You know, babies are the ones who don't yet know right and left. There are some interpreters and good interpreters who would say, no, that's not referring to that. It's really referring to the adult population. When it says they don't know their right from their left, it's saying they were morally unaware of their need to escape from wrath. They, they figuratively didn't really know their right from their left. But I really do believe this is referring to the babies that were in Nineveh. And by the way, there's scriptural precedent for that concept. You can just jot these down. You can look them up later. But in Deuteronomy 1.39, describing babies, it describes them as those who do not have the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, you look at a baby, and they don't really know what good and evil is. It doesn't take too long for them to grow up to learn that, but a baby doesn't really know the difference between good and evil. And in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 4, it talks about babies, and it says, they do not know how to cry, my father, my mother. I mean, the baby isn't able to do that. And so when it's talking about those who do not know their left from their right, I believe it's talking to babies, which means that the population of the city, as I've stated, was probably 600,000 to 1 million. But here's God's point. He says to Jonah, Jonah, you care more about one plant than you do hundreds of thousands of people. He said to him, you have more of a heart concern for something that is inanimate, something that is of low value, something that is of no eternal significance than you do for human souls which are of the highest value and which will live forever. In other words, he's saying to Jonah, you are more focused, you're more concerned, you're more motivated about your own comfort than you are about people who are perishing. Now, as I said, I think there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. And that's why God wants us to see ourselves warts and all. Because the, the truth is, I know this is true in my own life, I have this tendency to get, for example, we can get more motivated and excited about a big screen television 
than we do about befriending someone who is obnoxious at work who needs to know God. We get more motivated and excited about filling up our iPod with tunes than we might be about praying for gay protesters at the University of Oklahoma. We get more motivated and excited about getting a great, great deal on a sale than maybe we're motivated and excited about helping a neighbor who is struggling with difficulty in their life. We get more motivated and excited about going on a vacation trip than we do about having an opportunity to share our story with Jesus Christ with someone who has never heard about a loving Savior. Now, let me, let me just, please, don't misunderstand. I, there is nothing inherently wrong with shade on a hot day. There's nothing inherently wrong with having a big screen TV. I, I bought one a few months ago. There's nothing inherently wrong with having tunes that fill out your iPod. Someday, I hope to get one. There's nothing inherently wrong with just having great deals, great sale deals that you find. There's nothing inherently wrong with taking a vacation trip. We usually go on one every year. But here's the point. When we're more focused on those things, when we're more consumed by those things, when we're more motivated by those things, see, we're motivated by our own comfort and our own enjoyment. If we're more motivated by those things than we are about people who are lost and people who are hurting, then it indicates that my heart is out of sync with God's heart. Let me just, I want you to think about it for just a moment, just what comes to your mind. When you think about the most cherished toy that you have, the most cherished thing that you have, just think about it for a minute. Think about what the most cherished thing is that you have. And then I want to ask you the question, how does the worth of that most cherished item stack up with a human soul? By the way, that's a good question to ask yourself periodically. We have a little bit of Jonah in all of us. Now, if you'll notice, um, verse 11, there's no verse 12. <laughs> I mean, have you noticed how this book just abruptly ends? I mean, you're thinking, hey, listen, wait a minute, this is an unfinished book. I mean, you're, you're sitting back and you're going, wait a minute, I understand what the point God was trying to make, but <laughs> does, does Jonah get it or not? I mean, what happens here? Does he decide to just continue to sulk after the 39 days and nothing happens and he just goes back to his, his hometown of Gath Heifer and he just sits there sulking? Or does he come to his senses and he says, whoa, I need to go back into the city of Nineveh and begin to teach people about this God that they've come to know? What happened to Jonah? Did he ever get it or not? And actually, I believe it's the wrong question to ask. See, the question we need to ask is this. Did you get it? Did I get it? Have we learned anything from this book? You see, I believe 
that the book is designed the way it's designed because the reader is supposed to complete the story. And the amazing thing is, men and women, you and I are writing the final chapter of Jonah right now. Now, as we complete our study of this book, we want to draw some life lessons. And if I could just draw two of them out for us, I think of the ones that stand out most significantly from the book of Jonah. And here's the first life lesson, and that is that God cares about people. People matter to God. And that means, men and women, if we're going to be in tune with him, we need to care about people. We need to keep the main thing the main thing. There is just so much in life that can deflect us and can distract us. And we need to keep the main thing the main thing. God cares about people. And you have received compassion. I have received compassion and mercy and grace from God. And that is not a thing to be hoarded. It is a thing to be passed along. And so we need to ask God to deliver us from ourselves so that we can be effective ambassadors to a lost world. God cares about people. And I want to strongly encourage you, today at 6.30 here, we're going to have our Better Together kickoff where we talk about one way that we can show that we care about people is to touch them in their marriage. And so, a quick application that we can all do is to be here for that kickoff and to learn about how God might want to use you to touch some unchurched couples in our community. God cares about people. What's been going on recently? Well, we've been having the the doom of potential economic collapse. And that's what everybody has been talking about. And that would be a a very doom-like thing for our economy to totally collapse. But you know what? The collapsing of our economy is nothing compared to the doom of eternal judgment. Nothing. And here's what's exciting. We have the solution that the world needs to hear about eternal judgment. If you had the simple solution to the impending economic doom, wouldn't that excite you? We have the solution to impending eternal judgment. God cares about people. And there are people that you know, maybe people that you live near, you may go to work with them, you may go to school with them, who are experiencing defeat and despair, and they are looking for a way to calm their fears. They are looking for a way to find hope. God cares about people. You know, Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, here's what I want you to do if you want to follow me. He said, I want you to love your enemies. I want you to do good to those who hate you. And I want you to pray for those who mistreat you. Anybody mistreating you? Are you praying for them? Do you believe what Jesus says? Do we practice what Jesus says? God cares about people. And I want you to know, if you're here, it's probably because someone, perhaps many people, cared about you. I'm not here without having had people who cared about me. 
And God cares about people. Second life lesson is that God is a God of second chances. God is a God of second chances. Aren't you glad about that? I mean, that is true, even for the, those of us who know him, who are his followers, but who drift off the path. We've all done that some. Where we've strayed from God's path, even as his follower, from his purposes. We've strayed from his perspective in life. And yet, he's a God of second chances. And even, I don't know all of your stories because some of you maybe have drifted off the path. You knew better, but you went there anyway. But God is the God of second chances. He gives to us, the opportunity is always there to reboot our spiritual life. To reset our spiritual compass. And don't think, okay, even though I know him, I've just done this and I've done that and there's no way back. No, God is a God of second chances. And all you need to do to reboot your spiritual life is to come back and tell him you're ready to do that and he will meet you there. It's true for those who know him and follow him that he's a God of second chances and it's true for those who are far, far away from God. And again, I don't know everybody, but maybe you're here today or you're listening to this and, and you have been way away from God. In fact, you've been on the downhill shoot and you're thinking to yourself, it's too late. I, I've done this much or this much of my life's gone by. It's just too late. It's never too late. God is always there with second chances. And, and if you don't really know him, I want to I just simply make this very, very clear. It's important for you to understand that you can never deliver yourself from the specter of divine judgment. You cannot do it. But there is a solution, and that is through the person of Jesus Christ, who came and loved you enough to die in your place and to rise again from the dead to show that it was real, to deliver you from death and despair. He's a God of second chances. And in Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, it says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let him turn to the Lord. And what will happen? He will have compassion on him, and he will abundantly pardon. If you don't know him, I want you to know you can know him, and he is standing there with open arms ready to to receive you. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you again. I just thank you for this book that is alive. It is a living book of truth from you. And Lord, I just simply want to say thank you for being a God of second chances for one who, who seeks to follow you because I know I get off the path. I stray from your perspective. I have need of rebooting my spiritual life sometimes on a daily basis. And we thank you that you're always willing and patient and dedicated. And you're always working to carve out your character in us. And Father, for those of us who, who may not know you personally, I would pray that not another day goes by where someone finds themselves under the specter of eternal judgment by being only one breath away from death. 
it's so unnecessary because Jesus Christ loved enough to come, to bleed, to die. And may they realize that they should seek the Lord now, forsake their way, turn to the Lord, and that he will have compassion on them, and he will abundantly pardon them. And they can do that by just the best way that they can word it, to let you know what their heart is. And I pray they would come to know the God who is wonderful, who has open arms ready to receive them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.